We've been to all four corners of Britain in our quest to interview the great and good of entertainment. Comics, actors, writers, politicians, singers, dancers and choreographers. It doesn't matter who they are. They've all given me their own take on the world they live in and have, in their own way, helped to define what makes Britain great. So join me and my assistants as we get another insight into the marvellous and enigmatic world of showbiz here on Beyond the Title. Legendary writer, comedian and broadcaster Pete Price burst onto the entertainment circuit in the mid-1960s in the midst of the Merseyweek phenomenon, which undeniably put Liverpool on the entertainment map. From 1967, he presented a late-night talk show on Radio City, which saw him get up close and personal with some of the most prolific figures of the 20th century. A renowned and loyal ally to entertainment icons Cilla Black and Bob Monkhouse, Pete had an unrivaled insight into what it takes to become a bona fide showbiz legend. In 2017, he announced that he was cutting back his show from five nights a week to just Sunday night. From 2017 to 2020, he hosted Pete Price's Sunday Best from 10pm to 1am every Sunday. I caught up with the showbiz legend to talk radio, heroes and his recollections on an unparalleled career in entertainment. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr Pete Price. So firstly, it's virtually impossible to talk about popular culture in the 1960s without mentioning Liverpool. What do you think it was about the social and environmental Liverpudlian climate which created the perfect creative hotbed for talent? I think what created uh, the talent, and by the way, thank you very much for inviting me on the show. I'm absolutely delighted. Um, This is the new form of entertainment now, podcasting, so it's great. Um, Liverpool is a unique place. It's a magical place. Everyone's a comic. Uh, When I first started at a place called The Shakespeare as a comic, I went on stage the first night and uh, sang two songs and told four gags and I was a star. I was a star born and I was sensational. For two years after that, I got tables thrown at me, chairs thrown at me and I learned to to be a proper comic. So I learned the biggest lesson of my life. It's an amazing city for a magical uh, there's an ambience. Everyone's a comic. Everyone's a singer. Everybody wants to get up. So it, it is a hotbed of entertainment and um, stars. And we've brought out an awful lot of stars. You also worked as a comedian on the Northern Working Men's Circuit at this time. How would you define the Northern sense of humour and how important has this been to the preservation of the North? I think the northern sense of humour is quite remarkable. Um, and, and with the greatest respect, anybody watching from the south, you haven't got the same humour as us. Uh, but there are pockets of places. Leicester is not the greatest place for comics. There are pockets around. Uh, work in the worker men's clubs. And I'm from the day when there was sometimes three clubs in one road. And you think of the northeast, and you think of Glasgow, and you think of, of uh, Durham and uh, um, places like that. They were hard clubs because they would go straight from work. They put their feet on the table, they played dominoes and they'd watch the comic or they'd watch the singer. But you had to be a little bit different uh, because they'd seen it all before. So it was a great uh, area and a great time to learn your trade. So you did your apprenticeship. But the Northern, because we've always been treated badly by the South, especially governments, previous governments and governments now, Mm. uh, it's them and us. So we have to be stronger 
and um, it's it, it's quite magical, but it's hard. It's not easy, and the clubs weren't easy, but they were a great place to learn your trade. Did you ever play Did you ever play at the Glasgow Empire? No, I never played at the Glasgow Empire, but. I played a social club in Glasgow and it was next to an Indian restaurant and the smell was coming through the walls. It was horrendous. All you could smell was curry, <laughs> curry, curry. And I just got really cross and started banging on the world. Would you switch those ovens off? And, back? and the audience thought it was the greatest thing they'd ever seen in their lives. Never experienced anything like it. Um, I used to say when I was having a hard time, because I've died on stage, and for those people that don't know what that means, dying on stage is a, 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 a term to say that you're having a bad time. And I've died on stage in a lot of places. But what I used to say was when I was dying in places like Glasgow, I don't have to come here and die. I can stay at home. This club's a lot nearer to die. <laughs> <laughs> to what extent did your grounding as a comic offer you a unique perception of show business, which helped you relate to the stars who you, you would then go on to interview? Um. I, well, th there's a lot more to it than that question, because I actually um, worked with all the stars. I ran a major nightclub in, well, I was the host and then became a director of the Shakespeare Theatre Club. And then I went to Fagan's in Manchester. And it was in the days when there was the big clubs. There was the talk of the town in London. There was um, uh, a Batley Variety Club. So I actually worked with these stars. So I'd learned my grounding and I was incredibly respectful of these people this was way before I was doing radio and interviewing them so I'd learned and got to know them and why my radio skills and I say that in all modesty why my radio skills work is because I've been one of them and still am I've still do the clubs I'm working tomorrow night at a club I mean so I'm still working all the time so all of a sudden you speak to them and you say straight away you remember when we worked together you've broken a barrier down straight away you've broken a barrier down because it's not them and us it's me and them together and that was the greatest thing and I learned that some of the big stars and I've, I've interviewed many big stars but I also know many big stars I mean my autobiography is called Name Dropper and I am the biggest name dropper and I've been on here for I don't know how long so far and I've not named one person yet it's killing me <laughs> yeah yeah, Josh was just saying, don't worry, because the next few questions that are coming your way, you'll be able to name drop like crazy. All right. have to keep dropping, keep, keep going, keep going. <laughs> I keep you off. Yeah. So, uh, how significant was the role of local journalists in charting the Mersey Beat phenomenon? Um, that's a very interesting question. Um, I don't think it was. I don't think journalists had anything to do with it at the beginning. It was the fans. I was at school. Uh, Wednesday afternoon was the greatest. We used to sag off school and uh, go to the cavern. We'd have our clothes ready to change and we'd pay one and six to go to the cavern. But also I live on the Wirral 
and Wednesday night we'd have um, a pop night at uh, concert night at the YMCA in Hoylake, and we'd go to the frothy coffee. Um, Lantern Coffee Bar, get our coffee and go over. And we used to watch Jerry Marsden for one and six, and it was incredible. And by the way, Jerry was far bigger than the Beatles, far bigger than the Beatles for a long, long time. So I think the, the press later on got onto it, but we created it. I mean, when the Beatles had their first hit record, we picketed outside the cavern. We didn't want them to be famous. We didn't want to lose the Beatles. We didn't want to lose our music. And I mean, there's some amazing people that came out of it. And I actually feel sorry for people like yourselves and a lot of people that are watching now missing out on what was the most exciting time in my life. It was raw music. I mean, the cavern, I go past it every day when I'm in Liverpool. And there was just a staircase. That, um, 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 <laughs> you'd go down the stairs and right now, health and safety is out the window. I mean, it was a staircase, uh, as the width of you two sitting together, and that was it. And there'd be like 600 people trying to get in, and, and that was the way in and out. Um, and Paddy was on the door, and you never got Paddy past Paddy if you didn't like it. Then you got into the cavern, and it was magical. There was nothing magical about it. It was a dirty cellar. And you had to eat your soup, your bowl of soup, quickly before the sweat came off the walls. Then you'd have to use the toilet before it flooded over. And the sweat was rolling off you, but you had a ball. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That we Yeah, what do you think uh, pop culture would have been like without that sense of community? Uh, I don't think there would be any pop culture. I think every layer of pop culture has got a community. And the hardened fans, the other night, OMD, Andy McCluskey's a mate of mine, was on at the Empire. And those people in that audience go to every single concert. So I think every single layer of pop, whether whatever type of pop you like, you know, it's, it's, um, it, it's the fans that keep it going and bring it back to life. Cilla Black became a significant figure within your life from a very young age. Can you remember the first time you met her? Absolutely. Absolutely. See, I've got goose pimples now. Uh, it was the YMCA Hoylake, and I was having a frothy coffee, and we were full. It was sold out, and there was a group on called The Big Three, and they were my favourite band. Johnny Gustafsson was the drummer, and they were my favourite, favourite band. Uh, I loved them. Uh, sorry, the drummer... He, He's either the drummer or the bass player, and I can't remember. I hate getting old. Anyway, this girl got up to sing Fever, and I don't know why it stayed with me, but it was sensational. And I went, wow, who's this? And then I went down to the uh, cavern a week later, and she was on the cloakroom uh, getting the coats. And I went, are you uh, the lady that sang at the uh, YMCA in Hoylake? She's with the big three. She went, yeah. I said, so you're Amcilla. And uh, that was the first time and my first experience of ever, ever meeting Scylla Black. As the cloakroom assistant at the Cavern, Scylla was able to observe a range of different performers and how they interact with the audience. In your opinion, how significant was this in her ability to cultivate her own style 
and offer her the opportunity to interact with the public, which arguably surrounded her entire career. Right. I can say that she took nothing from nobody. She was unique from day one. She knew exactly what she wanted. She was herself. She never molded herself on anybody else. She had the confidence. She had the ability. She always knew where she was going to go. There's no argument with that. Oh, right. Uh, when Josh interviewed Jimmy Tarbuck a few years ago, uh, Jimmy Tarbuck mentioned that he said that Sidder Black was like the Cinderella of Liverpool. Um, uh, different. <laughs> I must pull Jimmy on that. <laughs> um, I, I don't understand his meaning on that because she knew exactly what she wanted. She knew exactly, as to Jimmy, as to Jimmy. As does anybody in Liverpool. Everybody seems to be on this level where, you know, you have that confidence. If you don't have that confidence, I think you're wasting your time in the industry, to be honest. How easy was it for Scylla to make the transition between pop star to all-round entertainer following accepting Bill Cotton's offer to front her own self-titled Saturday BBC variety show in 1967? Scylla knew exactly what she wanted in life and knew where she was going. A bit like Paul O'Grady. Paul knew when to hang up the dress. He knew exactly what he was doing. He's a very clever man, as was Scylla. And Scylla knew the longevity of her career. But don't forget, she had an amazing manager and the love of her life, Bobby, her husband. And he also guided her. But she made the ultimate decisions. And she knew it was time to move to the second level. She was nervous about it, but she knew. She's always been that confident. What, what can you tell us about the relationship between her and Bobby professionally and personally? It was a very fiery marriage, which made it work. They were very, very much in love. And he gave up his career to manage her and to create her. But he also, which always made me laugh because she always used to laugh at it. He's got more money than her. He always, she always said that because he wrote the B-sides. So made a fortune, absolute fortune. Didn't matter what he put on the records. He made, he got the same money as the A-sides in the old days. So that worked. But no, they had a magic. She's never, bless her to the day she died. To the day she died, she never, ever, ever got over the loss of Bobby. Bobby was her life and always has been and always was. By the 1970s, Scylla was one of the most famous entertainers in Britain, and it was only a matter of time before television producers saw her potential. 
in your opinion, was she happy at just being the queen of Saturday Night TV or could they have done more to showcase her versatility as an entertainer? Um, no, I think uh, they were perfect. I thought the way they guided her and um, she guided herself and had a big say in what she did. Make no mistake about that from day one. I think uh, it was perfect to be the queen of Saturday nights. was amazing. She filled every theatre, every summer season she did, every cabaret she did. She did it because, um, you know, when uh, I'm a lot older than you two, and in those days, Saturday night was the big night. I mean, I always remember, for instance, Sunday night at the London Palladium, I finally got onto the Palladium. Not on telly, but I worked the Palladium. And I put it in uh, my column that I was doing the Palladium, and I got congratulations as if I'd got a TV series. So it was a big, big step. And to be the queen of Saturday nights was huge because people stayed in. They were getting audiences, 25, 30 million people. Uh, what would you say is Scylla's legacy to British entertainment? Um, that's a difficult one because she meant so much to so many. Uh, we have a statue of Scylla, which I was responsible partly for, which I'm delighted at, which is in Matthew Street. Um, it's an amazing statue. Um, I always wanted to get a statue for her straight away. And I went to the boys. The boys paid for it. Council didn't pay for it. They wanted to gift it to Liverpool to uh, say how much she loved Liverpool and say thank you. I found the artist, Emma Rogers, who created it. And the rest is history. The statue's there. I mentioned the statue because you go and see the love and the photographs that are taken by it. She meant so much to so many people as a singer. I mean, her last album after she died uh, with, with the uh, Royal Philharmonic Orchestra to me is one of the most wonderful albums singing with uh, the likes of Cliff Richard and Rebecca Ferguson. It, it, it's amazing. So she was so much to so many. She was lovely in Panto. She was, I mean, she was, she came out of Panto 2000, sorry, came back into Panto 2008 for Capital Culture and people came from all over the world. Uh, it was, uh, you couldn't get a ticket. It was spectacular. And I was on that show with her and she was so much to so many. How significant was Brian Epstein to the cultural revolution of Liverpool in the 1960s? I think Brian Epstein was very important. I knew Brian only uh, slightly, but I'd been out a couple of times in his company. Uh, there is a statue that has now finally been commissioned and paid for that is going to go up in Liverpool to Brian Epstein. So there's a nice exclusive for you here. Uh, it's been talked about a lot in Liverpool, but it hasn't been talked about mm. nationally. But there is now a statue going up to Brian. I think Brian was a very tortured soul, a very sad man, mm. and threw himself into his career uh, of creating a star. And I think uh, without Brian Epstein, the Beatles would not be who they were today in any shape or form, talent or no talent, because all the talent in the world without the right pushing and the right management can go awry. So from 1967 until 2018, you presented your famous late night talk show on Radio City. As a broadcaster and journalist, how important do you see your role in capturing the fashions and fads of the day? It's interesting. It was more, the late night show was very important in my humble opinion, because I was a priest. 
Uh, and I say that with no reverency at all. I, I, I was a priest. I was the confessional box at night because the show went all over the place. I mean, I saved people lives. I was company for people. Uh, we talked music. We had guests on. So it was five nights a week, four hours a night. It was it was a powerful tool uh, to to talk about music, to talk about fashion, to have stars on, to have iconic people on. And I forget how much, well, it was 40 years, how many people I've interviewed and how many stories I've broken because we broke Michael Jackson dying. I was working with a man called Jay Hyde. He was my producer at the time. And we heard he died. And there was unconfirmed reports. And it was late night phoning uh, and late night radio. And I rang Sharon Osbourne. I rang Yuri Geller. I was telling them that Michael Jackson had died. And we got all the exclusive interviews before anybody was doing it, uh, which was horrendous to, to hear a, 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 an icon like that dying. But that was the power of this radio show and had the biggest audience for any local radio show in the country. Yeah, so as an interviewer himself, uh, Josh was just wondering, how, how do you go about yourself, like contacting people for that live interview? How does that arrange? How is that arranged? How is that put together so quickly? It's an interesting question. I don't know, to be honest. I see somebody. Um, there's a new TV show um, called the Nail the Nail Boys of Liverpool or the Nail Boys of. of, of uh, sorry, I forgot the name of it. But straight away, I watched it. Colin McEwen, who is LA Productions, I know him. I then contacted them. I said I'd love to get one of the guys on. Brandon's doing my show on. Sunday um, so I just and I have the knowledge of of saying to lots of people because I don't ring up and pester people I mean Sharon Osborne's a dear friend of mine but I would not ring her up and just say come on the show if it was a mega story I might say can I ask a favor but I never abuse my guests I never plague them I never pester them I give the option for them to say do you want to come on you know, so that, that's the way I do it. Um, and a lot of them say, yeah, I'd love to, or not now. Fine, no problem.
Yeah, Josh was just saying, do you think you've reached a stage in your own career now where it's flipped onto younger celebrities where you might get young celebrities wanting to come onto your show to further their career and use your show as a little like step, stepping stone, if you will. Do you get a lot of yeah. people approaching you to say, oh, can I come onto your show? And, you know, yeah, I get, I get people. But if people have got something to say, I'll have them on my show. Always, yeah. always. Everyone, so many people help me. So many people help me. And so I like to put something back. So I will go and lecture at a university. I'll go and give a talk. I want to give something back because people have helped me. So always, but they've got to have something to say. Um, I've only, and I won't mention the names, I've only interviewed two people in my life that dried up. And it was the most surreal experience I've ever experienced. One in particular, um, who wasn't famous, famous, but owned many, many nightclubs. And he was, oh, the stories were sensational. And as soon as the mic opened, he froze. And I, I, I've been doing it for years, so I can get round it. And then we close and have an hard break. And he'd go, right, so what we'll talk about this time is we're going to be good. And he'd go, and then the mic would open, and he'd go, yeah. <laughs> it was real. It yeah. was really bias. In 2017, you announced your departure from weekday radio, but you continued to discuss the biggest news stories of the day on your Sunday night phone show. As a journalist, how important is it to also tackle the stories facing the world today as well as the showbiz scene? That's a very interesting question. One of the reasons I gave up uh, five nights a week on radio is and I don't feel there is a place for a talk show anymore, as in with guests because since Black Lives Matter and issues like that, I find it the hardest job in the world. I think because of the pandemic, I've been thinking because of social media, it's now you have to think of every single word that comes out of your mouth. Yeah. And it makes me very, very angry. And I could kick off now. I'm not a racist. I'm not biased. I'm a gay man. I have no, I love everybody. But you have to think of every word. And I went, it ain't worth it anymore. And that's why I gave up radio. you <laughs> Josh was just saying um, it's a real shame because uh, a man of your experience and your career, it's sort of a shame that it's come to this. And like, why do you think that sort of style, your sort of style is, I don't know, maybe being phased out due to what you were just saying, you know, the different topics you now have to cover, being careful of every single word that you say. Yeah. I think, I think, I think it's tragic. I think it's absolutely tragic because we were always famous for being uh, a country of free speech. 
you know, I never, I mean, if you listen to my early stuff on, on YouTube, I do cringe at some of the things I got away with, but that was in those days. And it wasn't racist or anything like that. It was just outrageous and over the top. But now with issues, um, you, you are frightened to say anything. I mean, I think Twitter, which I'm on Twitter, is the most dreadful platform for vileness, vileness beyond belief. Yes. They police it properly, the better. I mean, Instagram is a bit more savvy. Facebook, uh, I don't really use. Um, but when I see stuff on Twitter, oh my word, I just, you yeah. have to plan every word and yeah. is vile language as well. Yeah. You said so. Yeah, and if you had said some of that stuff on your radio show, for example, you'd never be in work again, would you? You'd be cancelled. Right now, you think of everything. There was there was an interesting there was an interesting situation. I'm a great soap fan, so I watch the soaps. And the soaps were very important to me uh, as a phone-in uh, presenter because I would watch the soaps. I love the soaps, by the way. Coronation Street, never missed an episode from before you two were born. Scary, that is. Um, but the point I'm making is the storylines are very important. And they were, and I always remember straight away, I always think of this, Brookside, Stephen Pinder, who was a friend of mine who played Max Farnham, they had a Down syndrome child. And... It was the storyline of how they dealt with it. She didn't deal well, he did. But my phone in every night, it brought out people who could talk about their own experiences with Down syndrome. That's how important the late night phone in was. And that's how important and good it was. Now, there's a storyline in EastEnders that's just come on. Whether you're watching or not, doesn't matter. Simply this, a white taxi driver had an Indian, she's either Indian or Pakistani, doctor a young girl in the back of the car she, yeah right she was sick right she was sick she had arguments with the guy there was arguments back yeah. and then he went you lot now he got sacked for saying you lot now you lot could be you lot pakistanis you lot doctors you lot young people you lot girls you lot, i mean it was ludicrous and it, uh, it brought it home to me that you really can't say anything these days. All right, it was a soap, but that was the point they were making, yeah. in my humble opinion. And that's what scared me. And I could say things. I mean, when Black Lives Matter happened, when that dreadful murder of that girl happened and, and all the girls were out and the women uh, in the country were demonstrating, it was fantastic. But when you talk about it, you still have to think of every word you say, even if you're on their side, because someone will pick up on it because everyone becomes a policeman on Twitter or everyone becomes a policeman on social media yeah. and they all think they can do the job. Yeah. Very true, very true. Um, I, 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 yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, and Josh thinks there's a lack of understanding on both sides. There is indeed. I think that the whole issue of having diversity on television has gone in a different circle now, and people are now questioning it. And that's as far as I could go with that subject, because if I went deeper into that, oh, we would open a minefield. Yeah, we'd be here all day, wouldn't we? <laughs> we wouldn't be. We wouldn't be. <laughs> so uh, when Sir Michael Parkinson retired in 2007, he famously remarked that his collection of interviews traced a time in entertainment which saw the end of Hollywood's golden era. Reflecting upon all of your interviews, what would you say they teach us about entertainment? I don't think they teach us anything about entertainment because I don't think it'll come back the way it was because nobody does an apprenticeship anymore. People go on a reality show and they think they're a star. The word star is bandied about like there's no tomorrow. Uh, Parkinson uh, once said to me, I was at a party and Parkinson was there and I went up to him and I said, you know what? I would love, I would have given anything to be interviewed by you. <laughs> he replied, um, yes, it's a sad, sad that you're not a big star. So, but one day, maybe. <laughs> oh, my. Funny enough, Des O'Connor said to me at Bob Monkhouse's house, and I can see it right now. I said, Bob, I was on standby as a comic to work your show. And um, it never happened. And Bob said, uh, sorry, uh, Des said in front of Bob, who loved me very much indeed, Des said, um, you weren't that good, Peter. By the way, he wasn't joking. He meant it. Bob was very happy about it. And I was a bit sort of, but that was protecting himself. That's the way they were, you know, because they are there because they've got the best guests on. I think Parkinson had some amazing interviews. Uh, not my greatest um, favourite interviewer. Uh, I loved when Bob Monkhouse uh, did a series, in fact, of interviewing people. I loved him doing it. But I watched Parky uh, and admired and respected him very much indeed. Um, I think you just... It, it's a history lesson, isn't it, in a, a time gone by that will never come back, in my humble opinion. Looking back at your career, what's your proudest achievement? Difficult question. Very difficult question. I think working the Palladium, Joe and... Uh, uh, Joe, um, I'll, I'll do that again because I edited that out because he said Joe Anderson, the mayor of Liverpool. Why I said that, I don't know. I'll do that again. <laughs> Joe Longhorn invited me as a guest onto the Palladium and I'll never forget that as long as I live. And the late Mickey Finn, a Liverpool comic, said to me, when you go on the Palladium, you won't remember what you did. You will walk on that stage and you will be aghast at thinking of who stood on that stage from Frank Sinatra to Judy Garland to Liza Minnelli. And you know, he was right. I don't remember the show. I, I know I did very well. I drove home after he'd been on. I don't remember driving home. It was the most surreal experience of my life. It, it was just magical, absolutely magical. And final question, what's next for Pete Price? Uh, Pete Price right now. Um, I'm doing Sky News. I'm reviewing the papers. Uh, I do it twice a month, which I love. I've started doing twice a month with Jeremy Vine on the Channel 5 television show. I've got my Sunday show, uh, which is guests, four guests uh, in three hours, which I have on a new radio station called Liverpool Live. 
Uh, I write for the Liverpool Echo. I've got my Twitter and my Instagram, which is Pete City Price, and I'm doing some gigs. So I'm quite happy with that. Yeah, busy, busy. Yeah, so uh, Josh was just saying once we've uh, edited this and put it all together, um, it'll probably go up in a few weeks, maybe a month's time. Um, and then he'll let you know once it's gone up and then he'll send you all the links and you can share them to your social media. He'll have them on his social media, if that's all right. Don't deal. Don't yeah. deal. I, would, I, I wouldn't expect anything else. I wouldn't expect okay. anything else. <laughs> to talk to you today and he's listened to you before on Colin Edmonds podcast ah right yeah I like Colin I like Colin now a question straight straight answer don't lie to me I'm not looking for compliments straight answer how is my interview uh, in relationship to other interviews has it been good bad indifferent <laughs> media what <laughs> I love interviewing likes interviewing uh people like you because you know what you're talking about you know what you're doing sometimes when you interview certain people they don't really know how to kick start a conversation mm. how you know what they're really talking about what they're trying to engage with so you've been brilliant and thank you very much oh my pleasure totally my pleasure oh thank you very much oh anybody Oh, what I was doing, you know, here, by the way. <laughs> yeah, Josh will uh, let you know when the interview goes up on his website and on the social media, okay? Yeah. How can I take a picture now? Do I press... Is it those two? I'm trying to take a picture. Are you on an iPhone? Oh, I've got one. No, I've got one. I've got one. I just yeah. want to show my half, you know. Because he says uh, to me, what, what are you doing for a living, cheeky bastard? <laughs> By the way, I, never, yeah, I never, swore, never swore once. <laughs> That's all right, no worries. Well, yeah. thank you very much for your time today, Pete. Sorry I messed you about over when we could do it and everything, but you were very... No, 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 it was our mistake, don't worry. Uh, apologies. Take care. Nice to meet you both. 
You too. Take care. All the best. Thank you to our guest for being the subject of another Beyond the Title interview. If you liked this, why not browse the website and see if there's anything else that takes your fancy. Don't forget to like our Facebook page to receive updates on forthcoming interviews and to see more information about me and what I do. Thanks again and hopefully see you next time.